study of the book of Ecclesiastes. You might consider the question, what does wisdom require? Wisdom in this world certainly requires an accurate picture of the world, including ourselves. And Ecclesiastes is helping us to see things through the lens of God's word. And so we want to do that this morning. We're in chapter 7. And we are doing the second half of chapter 7 this morning. So starting in verse 15, you'll find it printed in the bulletin on page 6, Pew Bible, page 556, or however you want to follow God's word, I encourage you to do so. Let me read this passage. We're going to read from verse 15 on to verse 29, which is the end of the chapter. So hear God's word as I read it again, as I read it this morning, and we hear it again this morning. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her. But the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I've not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I've not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for this time together in your house with your people and those that you've gathered. Lord, we thank you that as we pray and as we seek your presence, we ask for your spirit to be among us and to illumine our hearts and minds individually and corporately as we hear your word. Lord, we pray that you would be at work among us. For if you're not then our time together is uh, a vain exercise. But we believe in your promise that your word will not return void or empty, that your purposes will be fulfilled. And so we pray for that again this morning. And we do so in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite writers is the early 20th century author G.K. Chesterton, a prodigious writer essayist, journalist, uh, theologian. He wrote many books. Uh, You may know him from the Father Brown mysteries uh, that he wrote and I think have been turned into a television show. 
And there's a story about him. It's an apocryphal story. I haven't been able to find confirmation of it. And I think I know why And as I've read about this. But it's a good story. Preachers love good stories. So I'll tell, tell you anyway. Here's how the story goes. That an editor of a newspaper in London was musing about the world and not in a good way. And he asked, what's wrong with the world? Now, we can imagine if this was taking place somewhere around World War I, that that would be on the minds of many people, just as it is now, as we think about the world around us and we see the things that are happening, and we, m- we might wonder, what's wrong with the world? As the story goes, you might expect a lengthy response from someone well-known for his lengthy writings, but instead, he wrote two words. In response to the editor's question, I am. What's wrong with the world? I am. Now, again, this likely didn't happen. He has a book by the same title. It's not a question. It's a statement. What's wrong with the world? I think Ecclesiastes is giving us both statements and questions to help us as well to recognize what indeed is going on here. And that requires us owning who we are, like that story goes, both our actions and our nature. But we know that's rare. It's rare for people to own their mistakes, their failures, their sins. We make excuses. We say there were mitigating circumstances. Uh, There's a reason I'm like this, and it's not my fault, it's their fault. Being willing to say, I am the problem, is scarcely evident in our society or even the church today. We don't like the word sin. We prefer to say we're morally challenged and that we're acting out of character. But the question still remains, what's wrong with the world? And unfortunately, we never find the answer because we are unwilling to look at ourselves now, the authors of, author of Ecclesiastes may not have liked it, but as he, as he observed the vanity of this world, he has discovered something. And here's my theme this morning. The outside world is a reflection of our inward nature. The outside world is a reflection of our own hearts. And I want to talk about three things with regard to sin. Yes, that three-letter word. Sin is universal. It is personal, and it is directional. So first, universal, and by that I mean two things. One, that everybody is characterized by sin when I say that it's universal, and that it affects every aspect of our lives. When Presbyterians or Reformed people talk about total depravity, which is the first T of TULIP in uh, the five points of Calvinism, as you may know it, we don't mean that everybody is as bad as they could possibly be, but that everything is impacted by our sin. Every institution, every individual, every part of society is impacted by sin. That's what we mean when we say sin is universal. And it may be more clear in some areas than others, but it pervades our world because it pervades our heart. And there are times... And Donna can tell you this, as things happen in the church and the preschool and things come to our door and I'll think, I have seen it all. And then something else happens. 
And I go, okay, maybe now I've seen it all. Well, Ecclesiastes, uh, the author says, in his vain life, verse 15, he's seen it all. And maybe he has. Uh, A reminder, I sometimes call him the preacher because that's how he refers to himself in verse 27. So the preacher's seen it all. And these verses, 15 through 18, are a challenging section as I was meditating on these verses and pondering them. I wrote in my Bible on the side, mediocre, does the preacher want us to be mediocre when he says, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool? Uh, Should we just sort of aim there in the middle? Well, I don't think so exactly. I think what he is providing us is the picture of a person who's self-righteous, they're the know-it-all, they're right all the time, and yet still does not have things go their way as well as the other side of things where someone gives themselves to complete license and wickedness. And both of those are a result of sin. Both the self-righteousness as well as the license are an effect or a product of sin. Don't think that sin only looks one way. I think that's something we become to Uh, come to sometimes we think oh that's what sin looks like not like me like those people like them like that but neither direction leads us to the lord verse 18 says it is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears god shall come out from both of them the one who fears god comes out of a self-righteous attitude or comes out of a wicked attitude that is we come to god and we, loo- uh, we lose those places that we've lived in. The New Geneva Study Bible says, Right knowledge of God delivers those who possess it from destructive excesses of self-righteousness as well as wickedness. Come to verse 19, and the author says, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. And he's coming back to the relative value of wisdom in the world it provides strength to us much more different than might and power and then this conclusion almost in verse 20 it's not the end of this passage but verse 20 surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins we would like for our sin to be isolated incidents lapses in judgment or to be talked about in a general way, right? As Christians, if you're a follower of Christ, you're okay with saying, yes, I'm a sinner. It sort of like comes with the territory. You have to be willing to say at least that. But then if you begin to drill down a little bit deeper, we get uncomfortable when we start saying, I'm a sinner because I lie. I'm a sinner because I lust. I'm a sinner because I'm greedy. I'm a sinner because I don't love God the way he's called me to. Right, we get uncomfortable when we get specific. We'd like to deal with the symptoms, but not the root. In addition, we continue to think that we can answer the most profound questions of life by our searching or our inquiry. That's what the preacher attempted, but he came empty. That's what he says in verse 23 and 24. We minimize our sin problem and maximize our intelligence, our self-improvement, our advances, Our death-defying improvements. And yet, all the while, our sin is keeping us from recognizing the depth of it. 
because our progress seems so promising. And yet how far from wisdom we actually are. Sin is the universal condition of man. It is our very nature. There's an echo of verse 20 in Romans 3, 9 and 10 when Paul writes, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already been charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And you may recall Romans 3.23, where Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul is likely quoting directly from Psalm 14 there in Romans 10, but it is the echo of Ecclesiastes 7.20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. He sees this. This is also what the preacher sees. And sometimes I ask this question. You've probably heard me state it before. But I ask this. Would I know it if I were self-deceived? Would I know if I were lying to myself, as often sin does in us and to us? And you may know that quotation from Charles Baudelaire. I probably said that wrong. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. I think that also applies to some degree uh, our own sin. We contribute just as much as the next person. And yet we'd like to downplay that reality. And so we need the perspective of Scripture. And one of the most powerful stories that Jesus told is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember that in Luke 18? Jesus presents a picture of a Pharisee who's standing off to himself, by himself. He's standing, and he's looking out among all the people, and he says, Thank you, God. I'm not like them. Look at all those sinners. Uh, Thank you, Lord. Uh, And and it is a picture of self-righteousness. And then on the other side, that other picture is the, the tax collector who would be the picture of sinfulness in culture. The outcast, the one who's hated, he's kneeling there, beating his chest, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a poor sinner. And Jesus asked, which one of these goes away justified? You see, we think that the the one who's self-righteous is the picture of God's blessing and following. And yet it couldn't be further from the truth. The bad guy, culturally speaking, is the one who understands the universal nature of sin. And he also understands that it's personal. He asks for forgiveness for himself. And sin is personal. It's not just universal. It is personal. The universality of sin is that big scale, that grand scale that's answering that question, what's wrong with the world But it's also in the small things, the smaller levels. Look at verses 21 and 22 to provide a helpful picture. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Paints a a very real picture for us of a common situation Essentially, the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, don't act like you're not a sinner. 
Don't act like you're the self-righteous one who, then man who, or woman who never sins. I often, you know this, or likely know this, I use driving as this example. How many times you've been driving, you cut, someone cuts you off, and you're, you want to share some thoughts with them, right? Some well wishes. You want to wave at them, right? And then only to find maybe a little bit down the road or maybe the next day, you do the same thing. You cut somebody else off, and they're giving you the same blessing. Right? Don't be surprised by that. Don't take that too seriously in that sense of your own self-righteousness. Our words, cursing others, or our driving may seem like small things. And in the grand scheme of things, they may be. And yet, what do they do? They reveal the nature of your heart, the real condition. It shows your impatience. It shows your pride. It shows your arrogance. Or any number of other things. The preacher's words cut deeper than just that we are sinful. No, we are sinners. And he states that we even know this in our hearts. We aren't just one-time offenders. Notice what he says. He says, you know you've done this many times. Many times. He's speaking to our very nature of who we are and that is hard to hear some sometimes and we see this in our relationships as well and when we think about the personal nature of sin in verses 25 through 28 we see something of the preacher's own sinfulness particularly if he's taking on the mantle of solomon or this is solomon writing remember one of solomon's great areas of weakness of sinfulness was women his relationship with women, he married thousands. He had many wives and concubines, and that contributed to his downfall. And yet, if this is Solomon, it would be rich, wouldn't it? Because here the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, look, I looked around, and I couldn't find a single woman, but I could find one man. And you can almost imagine he's putting himself in that position and saying, uh, you know, I, I can't find anything else, but look at me. Maybe it's tongue-in-cheek, or maybe it's actually uh, a great arrogance or pride. And maybe if this one man was looking not at those who don't follow the Lord, and instead looking at Ruth or Hannah or Deborah, to name a few, he would have said, I can find one righteous woman. But you get the picture, the emphasis here is not on what he did find, but what he didn't. And so this becomes a picture of the personal nature of sin. Solomon's downfall was that personal sin of his in several areas, including his relationship with women. A Georgia man, I told you about a Florida man last week, so let's be fair. I'll tell you about a Georgia man. I won't show you his picture as I sometimes do because he was wearing a University of Georgia sweatshirt, and I don't like this. Uh, but he's behind bars because he went online after the Rockdale County Sheriff's Office posted a 10 most wanted list on their social media, probably Facebook. And after they made the post, this gentleman said, how about me? To which they replied, you are correct. You have two warrants. We are on the way. 
And there's this picture of him. He's handcuffed wearing his Georgia <laughs> sweatshirt. And you know what? I saw that and I said, sin is just dumb. Right? It, when you break it down, and yet we see it again and again and again at a personal level, and that it, dumbness does not stop us, does it? Our sin is personal, but we're often focused on others. And that's what seems to cut to our hearts. When we see sin in others, we're quick to recognize it. We're quick to say, hey, that's wrong. That's a problem. Get it together. And that's not to say we should not take sin seriously in others or that there shouldn't be accountability for that sin. But we must be careful to not become judge and jury. When we see it in others, we should ask God to show us if the same is within us, in our own hearts. When we see it in others, we should give thanks to God for his grace and work in our lives. Do you see how that's a different perspective? A different attitude? Then like the Pharisee who says, thank you, God, that I'm not like them. Handcuffed, wearing their Georgia sweatshirt, making dumb comments on social media. It's easy to see it there. Harder to see it in ourselves. So take this to heart. Who are we? And what has God done in response to who we are? What has he done for us in giving us his son to rescue us from the lunacy and idiocy of our sin? Not only is sin universal and personal, it is also directional. And it seems like verse 29 in this passage is the punchline. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Everything that the preacher has just presented, it's all here. He's used this language again and again of searching out, of looking, of finding. And if you break it all down, what has he found? What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world is not God's design, but man's direction. In seeking to understand the depth of our sin, our own heart, our, uh, ours and others, we see that it is a directional problem. This verse affirms the witness of Scripture, particularly in Genesis 1 and 2, that what God has made is good. You may recall about man, he said that man and woman that he made is very good. So what has gone wrong? Structure is not the problem. It is the direction. That is, we have sought out many schemes, just like children. Now, some children are defiant. They, you tell them, you know, little Johnny... Come here. And sometimes little Johnny will go tearing off the other direction, won't he? That's a direction, isn't it? And that's away from your good design. Because maybe you're trying to keep them from running out in the road or whatever it may be. Some are loud about it. But some children are sneaky. They're quiet. They'll go the wrong way. They just won't do it in your face. That's still a direction, isn't it? And we do the same thing. Some of us will be loud about it and say, God, I'm going the opposite way. Remember Jonah? 
And some will be quieter. But in their heart, maybe like Peter, though he said it out loud, he said, Lord, I'll never deny you. And yet what happened? Not once, not twice, three times. Peter denied his Lord and Savior. In that sense, all of our directions are skewed. We're actually seeking any other way than God's way. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And so that brings me back to this original thought that we had this morning, a theme of the outward world being an inward reflection of our hearts, of our inward nature. So when you see the news, what do you see? Do you simply see the world out there, or do you see the world in here that you need rescue from? We decry the acts of others, and we might wonder what God is doing in the world, and that's understandable. But we rarely will turn to look inward to see the sin nature that is driving us or has driven us away from God. And that drives the world we live in away from his will and his plan. It's both. Jonah hightailed it away. Peter denied. Children run away or they hide. People we love seem intent on their own ways, even if they know and we know it's not good for them. Many schemes we seek after. My misdirection, my pride, my arrogance has to be in the picture. And what about you? What is your thinking? Do you see the misdirection of your sin and others? Remember the parable of the prodigal, which is better called the parable of the lost son? We look at the one son who went away to a foreign country, and we say, there's a sinner. But do you remember the older son who's hanging back when the father wants to celebrate the prodigal's return? And he's seeking his own way because he doesn't understand the love of the father. And yet both are invited into the Father's embrace. Both are invited into the feast that God offers for us. I should have asked you, do you want the good news or the bad news first? I forgot. I just gave you the bad news. But we need to be reminded of the bad news. Even if we're already Christians and we are accustomed to what we do here at North Hills with our our words and prayers of confession that we make a part of our worship service because we are recognizing the universal, personal, and directional nature of sin. But we also recognize that you're not just, and I'm not just, saved generally. As if God's kind of sprinkling fairy dust indiscriminately. I'm saved specifically from my sin and God's wrath that I rightly deserve because he has given his son to die on the cross for me. And I can say with some authority that God loves you and he's given his son for you as well. And so whether it's a a message that you've heard the good news a thousand times or maybe you're hearing it for the first time, embrace that as well. 
But in order to know the beauty and wonder and greatness of the good news, I have to tell you that bad news. And the author of Ecclesiastes does that for us as well, as well. We will fail to fear God properly or bow before his sovereignty. But God is graciously loving and caring for us still. And he's given us his son. And so receive that good news even as you acknowledge that you have and do the bad news too. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for today and this time. I I know there's some parts of this passage that are uh, uncertain or confusing. I've felt that as I've studied this week. And so, Lord, if there's something that I have said uh, or something that I've left out there that's uncertain or confusing, then simply allow that to pass. But instead, by your spirit, confirm the truth of your word in our hearts. If there's encouragement or exhortation, use that. And remind us of your mercy and that it is more than all of our sin. And that is the good news in light of our very real bad news. Lord, we rejoice and we thank you and we pray that you'd be with us today and this week to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jacob's